Ah, the sweet sounds of bad weather causing damage to people's property. It's something that happens all the time. And, you know, obviously when things like that happen, insurance comes into play, right? Mother Nature can create a lot of different types of stuff that can cause a lot of damage to your home and property. And that's what this podcast is going to be about. Um, Insurance, your money, weather disasters, and all that kind of stuff. I'm Ari Sarsalari. I'm a meteorologist here at the Weather Channel. In just a minute, I'm going to be joined by John Erdman. He's a senior meteorologist here at weather.com. We've done a few podcasts together before. Uh, And we're going to talk to a special guest who happens to be a buddy of mine. His name is Brian Wood. He is a meteorologist and storm damage analyst at Assurant. Okay, so they're a risk management company. They do a lot of dealings with insurance. Um, He's a total expert on just you know, this never-ending dance that goes on between bad weather and insurance and risk management. So um, here's how we're going to play it out. First off, we're going to talk about different types of damaging weather, so things like hail, like that uh, clip that you heard in the beginning there, wind, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, etc. We'll talk about what it's like to be a meteorologist and a storm damage analyst for a risk management company. And then we'll really focus on some solid advice for the people listening here, you guys, you know, homeowners, renters, uh, when it comes to insurance, you know, what types do you need? What kind of scams do you need to look out for, et cetera? And then we'll kind of wrap things up by talking about what the future holds for the insurance industry, how it could change due to things like climate change, et cetera. And I also want to get into some of this really uh, fun research that Brian gets to do that I'm totally jealous of because he gets to go out in the field really often and uh, actually do research. So, John, hello to you. All right, it's good to talk to you. Hey, I've been looking forward to this podcast because um, there are a few people in, in meteorology that put things into perspective as well as Brian does, so I'm really looking forward to chatting with him. I totally agree, and what an introduction you just got there, Brian. What's going on, man? How you doing? Man, you guys are making me sound like a saint. I guess it better be good. <laughs> well, let's find out. Let's get right into it. Okay, so um, I know that you do like a lot of research when it comes to hail, and um, you know, hail is kind of maybe your biggest area of expertise, if I'm not mistaken, but... You know, we've got a lot of different types of weather disasters. I'm sure you deal with different kinds. Like, what is the most costly type of weather disaster? Or, you know, maybe just talk about the different ones and how do they rank? Sure. The, when you talk about the most costly weather disasters, it's definitely hurricanes and, and typhoons, cyclones, because of the amount of damage they can do in over a, a wide area. Last year's hurricane season was a, sadly a perfect example of that, where we had a couple of massive Category 4 hurricanes making landfall in the U.S. and their territories. And you had Maria that caused about $90 billion in damage. Uh, according to NOAA, Irma was $50 million and Harvey was about $125 billion. And those are just enormous loss totals, some of the most costly hurricanes we've ever had. Uh, and you're right, as far as hail... Hail is the most common damage type that we see, and about in terms of just amount of claims we see, uh, I work with a number of mortgage companies, that's what we do where I work, and help them manage their claims. And about 65% of the claims we see on a yearly basis are from hail. Okay, so obviously, you know, you've got a lot of different types of stuff there. What about, you know, things like wildfires and stuff? Sure, wildfires aren't as common and in terms of damage, you usually have a handful every year that will cause damage. Most wildfires burn out in the great wide open, especially out west or even in places like Florida. Uh, but in recent years, we've seen a number of costly damaging wildfires. You had the one in, in Gatlinburg a couple years ago, and then last year was the worst wildfire season we've ever seen in California, where you had uh, about $18 billion in damage. Most of that 
came from the Tubbs fire that burned, unfortunately, a lot of businesses and homes in Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco. Well, you know, Brian, before I go any further, by the way, um, if you want to follow Brian on Twitter, he's at Brian WX, that's spelled B-R-Y-A-N-W-X. And again, he's a must follow on Twitter, just terrific perspective. Brian, you've been doing this for about 10 years now. Um, in your opinion, what is the most underrated costly weather that's out there? You know, typically meteorologists may draw their attention to certain types of weather. Definitely hail. It's definitely hail. It's definitely hail. Uh, when I first took this job, admittedly, I didn't know a lot about insurance at all. And the one thing that was very apparent, it was the costly disasters from tornadoes and hurricanes. Hurricane Andrew was kind of a watershed moment for our industry in 1992, where you had some small and medium insurance companies go bankrupt from the amount of damage that there was down in Miami and south of Miami. But when I got to this job, it was really surprising just how much hail damage there was. As I said earlier, 65% of the claims we usually see are from hail. But even in the past couple of years, we've had some incredibly costly damaging storms. In fact, last year we had three storms in 2017 that caused $2 billion of damage or more. And those three are in the top five costliest we've ever seen. So, Brian, um, you know, I'm really interested in just what it's like to have your job in general, you know. Um, you know, like what what are the reasons that an insurer needs a meteorologist? Like what do you do? About 95% of the claims we see come from something weather or geology related. Wow. So almost everything has something to do uh, with weather. But you also have, you know, your other 5%, you have vandalism or theft or even cars driving into houses or raccoons nesting in, a, in an attic or something like that. So there's still a sm very small percentage that would not be weather related. But when you have that many that many issues with homes that are weather related, it just makes a lot of sense to have someone there who can help quantify and qualify the type of damage you're going to see. You actually go out and do surveys on this stuff. I mean, do you physically get out there and go, you know, uh, you know, analyze what the damage was and that kind of stuff, or are you looking at pictures and running numbers in an office? Like, what is a typical day like? Sure. So if it's if it's closer to home, then I will go out and survey the damage myself. And if there's a storm from further away, it's gathering things. Twitter is a great tool for gathering real-time information. People, when a tornado hits their town or even when they get uh, big chunks of hail falling out of the sky, it's something that's really different for them. And so the, usually the first thing they do is snap pictures on their cell phone and upload it to Twitter or Instagram, somewhere on social media to talk about how crazy this all is. And that actually is a really great ground truth tool. As meteorologists, you know, no matter where you work, if you're in TV or the National Weather Service or even what I do, you there's a lot of forecasting and predictions of, of tornadoes and hail and these kind of events. But when you get that ground truth, the confirmation that what you're predicting is actually happening on the ground, it's incredibly valuable. So that that is that is probably the biggest thing for me is is using social media to quantify what's going on. Brian, is there a particular um storm damage survey that you've been on that sticks out in your mind as, as most memorable for you? And, and do, the, do, these, do these inspections that you do, they actually affect you personally? Do they affect you emotionally? Sure. Uh, there's two that are most memorable for me. They're both tornadoes. Uh, one of the things we do, we work with banks. So after a disaster happens and you get a check that's written to you by what we call primary insurers, your typical uh, state farm or farmers, the ones that people are used to hearing, we go out on behalf of our, our clients that are in the mortgage industry and the banks and help them settle those claims after State Farm cuts you the check. Because if you have a mortgage on your home, they will 
cut the check not only to you, the homeowner, but the bank or mortgage company that is lending you the money because they have the house and they're lending you the or you they're lending you the money to pay off the house. And so we go out and represent them and try to help troubleshoot claims and and things like that. So a lot of the surveys I get to do are because of that. And so the the first time I ever got to do that was the Moore, Oklahoma tornado in 2013, the EF5 damage. And just just driving into Moore and seeing the the emptiness and the quiet and the calm where there should should be houses and kids playing outside on a Saturday uh, was very eerie and surreal and and sad. So that that really sticks in your head. But for me also, uh, I do storm chase on my own from time to time. And in 2012, the year before that actually, I watched a tornado hit Henryville, Indiana. It was an EF4 tornado with 175 mile an hour winds. And going into that town immediately after the tornado hit and after that tornado, about 20 minutes later, a second supercell came through with baseball-sized hail, which is pretty rare for our part of the country, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky. Don't, we don't see that type of hail very often, let alone having it fall on people who are trying to get out of their houses after their houses have been destroyed by a tornado. Uh, meeting the people, seeing the damage, seeing the people who were hurt, and grieving, it it fundamentally changed me not only as a as a meteorologist but even as a person because you realize uh, when you see these things happening you realize how precious life is and you it just changes you. So for me, my job was and still is quantifying storm damage. But now after that event, it was well, how can we prevent this from ever happening in the first place? Is there some good I can do with the data that I have? Is there research we can do to make homes stronger and more resilient and Therefore, less homes are falling apart, less people are getting hurt, less people are getting killed. And so that, that kind of shifted my, my goal in terms of being reactive to proactive. So when you go out to one of these spots, like what is the amount of time that you spend out there? I mean, are you out there for a while and you, you know, have to stay at a hotel for a couple of days? Is it just you go out there for a day and do some surveying? Uh, um, you know, talk about that. When we go and represent our clients, we, we'll spend a couple of weeks there because there's, especially after an event like Harvey, for instance, in a, in a massive city like Houston, where there was widespread flooding, there's a lot of people you need to get to. So it's not just showing up for a couple of days and, and then going home. It's being there for weeks on end. And to keep everything fresh, we tend to rotate people out every week. So you work a week long shift, then you fly out and we fly more people in because you're working really, really long hours, pretty much from sun up to sundown, helping people. And so we'll, we'll stay in a hotel and in a big sprawling city like Houston, it's actually easier to rent out a conference room and have people come to you rather than you go to them. Because in a city like Houston, where it can take you over an hour or so to drive from one side of the city to another, you can help a lot more people if they come to you rather than you just maybe getting 10 people in a day uh, because of all the traffic and the driving you need. Whereas if you sit in a conference room and have people come to you, you can help hundreds, if not a thousand or so in a day. Well, that's a, that's impressive. I mean, it, it that seems to me like a very unique uh, position for a meteorologist, not only to alert people ahead of time, but then to help people after the after the event. So, Brian, let's go to, um, and again, we're talking to uh, meteorologist Brian Wood from Assurance, a risk management company that works with insurance uh, companies. And we're talking about uh, damage from weather and what you, and let's move on now to what you can do uh, as a homeowner. So, Brian, um, I think most people, well, Maybe not most people understand that uh, your standard homeowner's policy doesn't cover flooding. Um, is there anything else about um, a typical homeowner's policy that uh, 
uh, maybe someone like me might get it wrong as far as covering for weather disasters. I think one of the other big ones besides flood that people don't realize is not typically covered by your standard homeowner's policy is land movement or earthquakes, uh, especially in, in areas like California, where only about 10% of people have earthquake insurance. It actually has a worse uptake rate than most flood-prone areas. Uh, another one that is far more common no matter where you live in the country is, is sewer backup insurance. If you are in a city and you have sewer lines running through, uh, if something clogs the sewers up and the water starts backing up in the homes, if you don't have a sub-pump or, or a shutoff valve, or maybe even if those fail, uh, sewer backup insurance typically is not standard on a policy. I actually have it on my house just in case uh, there is a heavy rain event and all of a sudden the sewers back up. I'll get water in my basement. So I carry that coverage. It's very, very cheap. And it gives me a peace of mind because if you have water backing up into your basement or the first floor of your home, out of a sewer line, you're talking about five to $10,000 in damage. And I'm my premium, I think, is somewhere around $50 a year for that. So One thing I've always wondered is, are there certain like scammy types of insurance that stick out to you? Like, you know, you sometimes hear people talk about like pet insurance, you know, a lot of people sell this, but you don't really need it. Are there certain types of like weather related insurance that uh, maybe a lot of people are getting and they don't need? No, actually the big, far and away, the biggest problem is most people are probably underinsured for what they actually need, especially in hurricane prone areas. And, and with flood coverage, even, you know, if you get a national flood insurance policy, the, the maximum cap is $250,000 in coverage. And if you have a beachfront house in Florida, most people's homes are, are a little bit more expensive than $250,000. So they're actually underinsured. Uh, I don't know that I can recall ever meeting someone who was overinsured or, or had too much insurance. And in, ter- in terms of scams, we really don't see a lot of insurance company, maybe perhaps if someone's pretending to be an insurance agent, uh, but most of the scamming tends to happen after the storm. Storm chaser type roofer contractors that aren't licensed that show up and say, hey, I'm going to repair your roof for you. You've got hail damage. And then you give them some of your money from your insurance policy payout, and then they just take off. That's, that's far more common. Well, Brian, you've already been a big help to me because I did not know there was such a thing as sewer backup insurance. <laughs> yeah, same here. Uh, and, you know, I, we, uh, just a real quick story here in Southern Wisconsin, we had, um, you know, we had some heavy snow in middle, in the middle of February, and then we had a, a big warm up along with heavy rain. And my sump was running uh, about every 30 seconds for about 24 hours straight. And I was nervous. <laughs> uh, so, so just to reiterate, Brian, about that. Uh, so, sewer backup insurance, sewer backup is not covered by flood insurance, no, correct? It's typically, and what what flood insurance is? It's water that's coming up over a riverbank, water that's falling from the sky and into the ground, or water coming up out of the ocean, like storm surge. Those are what are typically covered by by flood insurance. I actually don't have a flood policy on my home. I live about fifty vertical feet, and I made sure that. When I bought my house, I wasn't anywhere near a floodplain. I live about 50 vertical feet from the nearest floodplain. I actually live on a hill, so all that rain goes rushing away from my house. So my flood risk is, is very, very low. But the big risk for me of getting water into my house is actually from the sewer backing up into your house. And so that was a separate attachment that I was offered by my insurance agent. Are there any things that stick out in your mind to you, like when you're doing these surveys, that you see like, oh man, if these guys just had... X to uh, protect them from this, they wouldn't be in such bad shape. Like basically, I'm kind of asking, like, what can homeowners do to make their property more resilient to storms? Like stuff that people may not think about. Sure. If you look at all the different 
uh, causes of loss, types of storms that we have. You think about something like a wildfire, and even in the really terrible wildfires that we've seen, there have been homes, you'll see pictures of homes just standing in the middle of the neighborhood where the rest of the neighborhood seems to be burnt down. Even in a place like Fort McMurray in Alberta that had that really vicious three three or $4 billion wildfire a couple of years ago, there were homes that were next to the forest that were still standing. And what they do is they create defensible space. They're clearing out brush. They're clearing out shrubs away from their house. They're using uh, gravel along the landscape instead of, of sh- decorative shrubbery, or they're clearing out their gutters from debris. Because what happens a lot of times with wildfires, and we saw some of this in California this past year, it's not necessarily that what we would think would be the wall of fire moving into a neighborhood that burns everything down. It's the embers of the fire that are being blown by the wind because most of these big wildfire events also have very strong winds, 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds that are driving the fire. And they're carrying the embers ahead of the fire line. And so it's nothing that the firefighters can stop. Even if they're making a a stand against the line of fire, those embers are still floating through the air above them. And those can land in your gutters if you have dry pine needles from trees that are hanging around your house, or if you even have piles of wood for your fire pit stored next to your house those embers hit the hit that dried out stuff, it just ignites that house. And you don't even need to be near the fire line to lose your house. If you're talking about something like uh, hurricanes or tornadoes, there are programs out there now that are building programs and we're seeing them being adopted more often. It's called Fortified Home and it's through a, a group of researchers called the Insurance Institute of Business and Home Safety. And they they actually research different ways that homes fall apart or catch fire or destroyed by hail roofs are destroyed by hail, and they make recommendations. And one of the programs that they have is called Fortified Home, and it encourages people to put straps that strap your roofs to your the side of your walls and to make sure your foundation is well secured because a lot of the time in the wind-type losses, where whether it's a hurricane or straight-line winds or even a tornado, wind is getting underneath somewhere and looking for a weak connection in your house, and it's usually at the roof and the walls. Or sometimes if your roof is well-secured, but your walls might not be well secured to your foundation. It might just shift your entire house. And so a program like that, if you're building a new house, can save you a lot of money. And even economists have looked at the fact in Alabama and coastal Alabama, where they've worked on this, that the resale value of your house is about 7 to 10% higher. So the minimal investment that you're making in, a, in that type of construction on a house actually pays itself off. And you could qualify for an insurance premium discount too anyway, so you can make your money back even before you, you sell your home. And one of the recomm- yeah, and one of the recommendations they made in, in Florida with the building codes, the stronger building codes that came after Andrew, there was a long time where we didn't have a very strong uh, wind event or in terms of hurricanes after Andrew and Charlie was really the first one to test those type of building codes. And what the IBHS found was the fact that in Charlie, where that damage was, which was a category four hurricane, that there was a 40% reduction in the frequency of damage and for those homes that were damaged, about a 60% reduction in the severity of the damage to the homes. So even if your home was damaged, you're, it's a lot less damage. It, you're less likely to lose your entire home from the wind, and it, it pays itself off very quickly. Yeah, those are some absolutely great tips uh, for the people listening. I mean, I'm just sitting here soaking this up myself as a new homeowner. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm make a note of that, mental note of that. Uh, listen, Brian, we put this up on Twitter, uh, I think, uh, what was it, yesterday? Uh, telling people that we were going to be talking to you, seeing if they had any questions. And we got a couple questions from people, and they were pretty good ones, so I'm going to go through them a little bit here, if you don't mind. All right. Sounds good. 
Question number one. I forgot to write down the names here, but these are all from Twitter. When an area sustains weather-related damage, how often are meteorologists called upon to help verify weather-related claims? Is it scenario-specific for different types of weather? So, uh, yeah, I think that question was from, from Mark Ellenwood. He, he asked that question, and meteorologists, uh, a lot of insurance companies have uh, fraud investigation if they feel that there might be someone who's passing off uh, damage that didn't happen from from weather, and they want to investigate that. There is, and they have an entire unit dedicated to those type of things. But meteorologists aren't necessarily involved in in home damage very much. There are some people who create different products. Meteorologists that work for, say, uh, catastrophe modeling companies or other companies that have developed tools to help insurance companies who have who developed tools to say, hey, here's a hail swath that happened. And so if there's people asking, telling me that. I have hail damage, but they're five miles removed from this hail swath. Hey, maybe that's something that that fraud unit might want to take a look at. So meteorologists aren't necessarily involved in verifying those type of things. But one interesting thing in an actual Weather Channel connection, Dr. John Scala, who used to work for the Weather Channel, uh, actually remember him in 1999 during the Bridge Creek F5 tornado that hit Bridge Creek and Moore in Oklahoma, reading, uh, reading out a printout of the damage live on the air. He now works as a consultant for lawyers who are looking at weather type related issues and lawsuits and claims. And he actually works as a expert testimony. He testifies as to whether the weather conditions actually happened or not that might be involved in, say, a lawsuit or something like that. It's a really interesting person to talk to about those type of things. He's actually going to be keynoting. I'm running the student session at the National Weather Association annual meeting this year, and we're going to have him keynote that meeting and he's going to talk about that. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, John was a John Scala was an, an excellent meteorologist to work with as a storm analyst at the Weather Channel many years. I remember being a weather producer for him and yeah, it was, it was just a he was an encyclopedia of knowledge. Um, okay, our next question from Twitter. Um, are there any weather-related damages that would be considered preventable and therefore wouldn't be covered by insurance? That's an interesting question and I don't I don't know that we could necessarily call anything preventable. Uh, that, that's always a, a slippery slope and a gray area. Uh, one thing that maybe is a little bit more common if someone had, let's say they're in a hurricane prone area and they got a payout for damage from a previous hurricane and they never fixed the damage and instead took that money and bought themselves a nice new fishing boat or a new car instead. And then another hurricane comes and they try to pass off that old damage as new damage. Uh, that would be denied. And it's usually pretty obvious because much like a when you see a freshly fallen tree that's broken off and the wood is splintered and you can tell it's fresh, but over time you can tell if a tree's still laying there that it's been laying there for a couple of years because it gets weathered away and it becomes a little smoother. You can see that on homes too and in terms of the shingles and other things that might be damaged. They tend to weather and round off over time and it's not fresh damage. So that type of thing does happen from time to time and that would be something that insurance companies would say, hey, this is not new damage. You, we paid out a policy a long time ago and you, ne- you must have never fixed it. So here's another good question that we got. Uh, somebody says, I once heard that insurance companies make more money from natural disasters, you know, things like hurricanes. Is there any truth to that? No, not at all. Uh, insurance companies work hard to maintain money to pay out, and especially in, in bigger events. So there are years where there's not a lot of natural disasters where insurance companies will turn a profit, and those profits are, are necessary because you need to have that money on hand to pay out in a year like last year where you had a number of hurricanes happening. And so you need those 
those years where there's not a lot of catastrophe in order to pay out in the years where there's a lot. And there is something called reinsurance. A lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with it, but the reinsurance industry essentially insures insurers. So you'll pay a pre- an insurance company will pay a premium to a reinsurance company, and that reinsurance company will say, okay, if you have more than $500 million of damage from an event, let's just say a hurricane in Florida, if your company has over $500 million in damage, we'll pay the first $500 million over that. So we'll cover your damage from $500 million up to a billion. And if you pay this premium, we'll do that. So essentially, insurance companies going around and taking insurance against their own losses in order to, and that's a vehicle that allows us to not, when we have big events, not take nearly as big of a financial hit, and therefore we're able to pay out those claims. But everything we do in and homeowners insurance in terms of making money or paying money is you need to have money on hand when those really terrible disasters happen because there's going to be a lot of claims and a lot of money needed and you have to have that money to pay it out. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, we've had we've had some pretty up and down hurricane seasons recently. Of course, last year was you know, it was Harvey, Irma and Maria and then, you know, we've had past hurricane seasons that have been very very quiet with very few landfalls. So, uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, the last question we had, uh, an interesting one here. Um, because federal flood insurance does not provide business interruption coverage for lost revenue, are there options for business leaders to recover that lost revenue due to a flood through private insurance? So that something, business interruption insurance is something I'm not terribly familiar with. So I'm not the best person to ask. Okay. I know there is business interruption insurance out there. So my advice there will be to shop around and ask around, talk to your insurance agent that is working with you on your regular policy for your commercial needs. And then if they don't, then shop around and see if that's available. But other than that, I that's not my area of expertise at all. Okay, fair enough. So we got through the social media questions. Let's talk about um, this research that you're involved in. Every time I hang out with you, <laughs> you know, we end up talking about this a little bit. Um, the idea that you get to go out, you get to drive into hailstorms. That sounds like fun. Actually, I've got some audio here of the last time I drove into a hailstorm. It was with my wife when we first started dating. She's also a meteorologist. And we were out storm chasing one day and we realized there were going to be no tornadoes. This was in Moulton, Alabama. And we were like, let's try, let's drive into a hail core. I don't really care about my car. So here, here was that. I think I'm even going to be able to run and get you something. Poor baby. Easily more. I think I got out before any swears were in there, but (laughs) that was a fun day, man. But uh, so do you basically do that sometimes? I mean, you're driving, are are you trying to put like probes out in front of hailstorms or do you actually drive into the hail cores? Like what is the research you're doing? So I mentioned earlier the the IBHS group, they they do research and they actually have hail cannons in in their building and they build up roofs and will shoot these hailstones at at the roofs to try to make to see how they can find a way to make them more resilient to hail is making them impact resistant for that's probably the best way to put it but the old way of doing it was simply just taking a mold and freezing a bunch of water in it and launching it out of a cannon but that's not an accurate hailstone meteorologists we know that hailstones aren't just frozen water but there's air bubbles and there's rings and layers and it just putting a ball of frozen water in a hail can doesn't truly represent it so what they do is they will send these research teams out and they're getting ready to go out again. I was lucky enough to to join them last year for it. And they essentially drive out ahead of hailstorms. And you mentioned driving into hailstorms. That's not actually what they do because they will de- they'll deploy a line of probes that is you know te- about 10 miles or so long, maybe less depending on their, their confidence of the storm direction. But unlike most storm chasers who are very close to the storm or within, say, 10 to 15 minutes of the storm, 
you actually need about 30 to 40 minutes of lead time to get all your instruments down and get out of the way of the storm. So the really interesting thing about chasing in the Texas Panhandle in Oklahoma last year was the fact that where we were chasing, it was dead quiet. Where we were putting down our instruments, there were no storm chasers around because we were pretty far away. But in order to be able to properly set those instruments out, those probes, and let the hail hit them, you have to have a lot of time or else you're going to be right in the middle of the storm. And we really don't want to do that. So I was able to be part of one. They had three vans and I was on one of the vans and we essentially started from where we expected the inflow to be. And I covered the area down towards the rear flank downdraft, the bo- essentially the bottom of the storm. If you're not familiar with uh, the way storms look, the south side of a storm. And also looking out to make sure there are no tornadoes developing or anything that to let the other teams know that are a little further north and have more time, need more time to get out of the storm, that something nefarious is happening. But after the, the hail, after the hail hits those, those probes, then we'll go back in. We'll let the storm go by. We'll watch the storm and get that, you know, idyllic storm chaser moment where you get to watch the storm move by you, which it, and seeing those rain-free hail storms in the panhandle is amazing to see. Uh, but after those storms go by, then we go right back in and collect the probes, but also measure hail, uh, weigh it, find the proper measurements, the height, the spikes, whatever. And then also taking a 3D scanner, they have a, a really nice 3D scanner and they scan the hailstones and they can actually go back and recreate the exact shape of the hailstones that they're scanning and make their mold out of that, but also take the width and length measurements and the the weight and actually say this was the right density. And so they can actually adjust the correct density and actually recreate in their lab real hailstones that we saw out in the field. And they can accurately represent hailstones when they're trying to break those roofs and find ways to make them more resilient. That is so cool. Um, I was going to ask, though, I mean, 30 to 40 minutes of lead time for that. You know, I'm just thinking about when I'm watching a severe storm on radar, you know, and my favorite way to now cast hail is to grab that 3D volume scan and kind of set things up so I can see things really nicely. Sure. And, you know, very often you see situations where that whole process happens in way less than 30 or 40 minutes. You know what I mean? You can get that updraft, it suspends the hail up there, and then the hail falls. Like that whole process can be like 20 minutes or less. Do you sometimes just have to pick storms and be like, okay, it's a, you know, this is an area that's going to have a lot of lift. The storm's probably going to get pretty big. We're just going to put our uh, instruments out and hope that it turns into a hailer. Yeah. So the first two days that we were out last year, we were along the dry line in Texas, and you have a pretty good idea of where those storms are going to be. We tended to play what we call the dry line bulge, where there's this little a shove of the dry line a little further east than the rest of the dry line. And that always seems to be one of the first places to for storms to break through and, and go up. And so that's an area we tended to watch and then let them develop for a little bit. Sometimes they'll split off or split up and, and then let them start to grow a little bit of a updraft. And really you're watching the, the updraft. If the updraft is strengthening, you then know that a hail core is probably soon to follow because hail growth tends to be correlated to the speed of the winds and the updraft, the stronger it is, the more likely you are to have hailstones and bigger hailstones. And so it's a lot of watching that and keeping your eye on the sky. And the folks I'm with at IBHS are far more experienced with that than I were. And they just had a pretty good knack of being able to pick those winners out. But even so, uh, as you said, we had a couple that uh, that whole process happened before the, the hailstones would have got to our instruments. And they got outflow dominant where the hail core collapsed and the winds took over and it was a lot of heavy rain instead of hail hitting the probes. And so the, you, you win some, you lose some with that type of, of setup. But the wins are incredibly gratifying knowing that you're contributing to that kind of research that can make a difference. That's fascinating. Brian, I remember the uh, the imaging that IVHS did, I believe, with the uh, record Alabama hailstone earlier this spring. It was, it was pretty 
pretty interesting to see. Um, so I have to ask, uh, since hail is one of your favorite topics, uh, and you're a storm chaser, have you been caught out in the open in a hailstorm before? you have any hail stories to share with us? So I, I only got caught once, and that was actually the, that time in Henryville with the second storm coming through. Oh, uh, yes. After the tornado went through, my first, my first uh, instinct was to drive into town to help. And then realizing there was another storm behind it, I kind of stopped myself. And I was on top of a hill where it was overlooking essentially the town from the south. There, I think it was a church parking lot or, or a commercial building. I can't remember for sure. But I'm sitting there watching the second storm start to move through. And I can see the wall cloud. The wall cloud was almost touching the ground and certainly the tops of the trees. It was just the cloud base was incredibly low. And I happened to just look over to the west to my left and I just see this giant curtain of white kind of moving around. And I realized I <laughs> that there was a hail, hail storm coming right for me. And actually what had happened was the storm was starting to gust out a little bit and the hail was getting caught up in the rear flank downdraft. And so oh, goodness. I was kind of in that area. And I immediately stepped on the gas in my car, pulled out of the parking lot and started driving down, I believe it was US 41, whatever runs parallel to I-65 in Southern Indiana. And I, the hail started falling on my car. It's getting about the size of quarters and a little, any larger than that, you tend to start having car damage from, from hail. So I was in a hurry to get out and I was going over the speed limit. And then all of a sudden I saw sirens behind me or saw lights and heard sirens behind me. And I had a police car right on my tail. And I thought, I can't believe I'm about to get pulled over while hail's falling. I'm probably going to get a ticket. I'm probably going to lose my windows to hail. I'm three hours from home. <laughs> this is awful. And my heart just really sank. <sighs> and then all of a sudden, the, the I started to pull over to the side and the cop cars all, there's two or three of them. They all went flying past me and I breathed a sigh of relief. And then the hail stopped and I stopped and the cops stopped and they got out of their car. I got out of my car and I wanting to maintain situational awareness. Uh, looked around to make sure there's nothing else in the area. You'd never know if a tornado is going to form again. They tend to form a little bit further south from the previous storm if they're cycling. So I wanted to make sure that nothing like that was happening. And the cops came up to me and said, hey, are you a storm chaser? I said, yeah. <laughs> they said, is it okay to go back into town? And I said, <laughs> yeah, the storm, there's, another, there's a line of storms. There's a cold front coming right behind those two storms. I said, there'll probably be some lightning there, but I don't think there's anything going to be really bad with that. And so they thanked me and they went flying back north up into the town. And uh, right about that time, there was a caravan of ambulances coming up that road into Henryville. And that was a whole different heart sinking feeling knowing that, you know, what I had just seen that if they're sending that many ambulances, that's never a good sign. That was the one time I almost got taken out. I yeah. still, I still remember that one. Oh, oh man. I, I, I mean, I just still remember following that tornado on radar. Uh, God, what year was that again? 13? That was March March third, twenty twelve. Twelve. That's right. Twelve. I was still in West Virginia at the time. I remember sitting at my desk at my house following that uh, that situation. It was just a very memorable storm. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, they're out in the field, but just looking at it on radar was spectacular too. By the way, I can confirm that when hail gets larger than quarter size, it does damage to your car. Um, <laughs> yeah, those were some golf balls that we were chasing that day, and <laughs> I had a bunch of dents in my car in that. Uh, uh, on that day and thereafter because I didn't really care about the car that much and I wore it as a sign of what do you call it I'm just proud I was proud of it that's right I went into a hailstorm uh, Brian this has been super interesting man I really appreciate the time um, I know you actually you're working from home today so that you could do this podcast with us but we'll let you get back to work uh, thanks to John Erdman 
as well. And uh, it's just been fun chatting with you guys today. Our producer, Jim Robinson, thanks to you, all the editorial staff at weather.com. And by the way, we really appreciate all the new subscribers. Like, this has been growing pretty fast. And, um, yeah, we hope we get some more. We should probably get some swag to give out. What do you guys think? We got any good swag? I always love some good Weather Channel swag. Yeah, man. I... I I've got a few, like, uh, polo shirts and stuff that I don't wear too much anymore. You can have pre-worn polo shirts. That would be some good swag, huh? <laughs> Maybe if we get another couple hundred or so. Um, you guys can always tune in on, obviously, like Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play. Uh, just check out podcast.weather.com. It's a pretty nice little website that we're putting together. Uh, we're still pretty early in the process here, but uh, we've been enjoying having you guys along, hanging out with us during these podcasts. All right, Brian, thanks again. John, we'll see you next time. And uh, everybody who listened, thanks again. We'll see you next time, too.